This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Well, well, there are a couple actually dealing with legalities that I want to clarify, and uh, we'll get to the St. Mike's case again here in just a moment. But the other one involves this rather, uh, I don't want to say notorious figure, but he certainly came to our attention for a variety of reasons. Uh, that has to do with Joshua Boyle. You might recall that uh, he was a former hostage. Yeah, he was held against his will in the prime minister's office. No, uh, he was held by the Taliban for five years in Afghanistan, along with his wife, uh, who apparently he took there. Uh, they were in the Middle East. He decided, just wanted to go off the beaten trail, ends up in Taliban-held territory. And for five years, they're being held. And uh, nonetheless, they also had some kids in captivity, three of them. I guess they've got four in total. But he was facing 19 charges, 19 charges dealing with uh, things like uh, assault, sexual assault, unlawful confinement, the Ontario Court Judge Peter Duty dismissed all 19 against Joshua Boyle, citing inconsistencies in the testimony of his estranged wife, uh, Ms. Coleman, and uh, other things like uh, the fact that she was unreliable as a witness. Let's find out uh, exactly what probably went down in this instant, as well as the St. Mike's case and more. Joining us on the line, Global News Radio legal expert Lawrence Ben-Eliezer. Lawrence, how are you this afternoon? Great to be with you as always, John. Thank you for that, Lawrence Ditto. Now, uh, in this case of Joshua Boy, 19 charges, and the bulk of which dealt with, again, assault, sexual assault, unlawful confinement, uh, dismissing all 19, like holus bolus, they're tossed right out. Uh, is that like because it's such an open and shut case? No, John. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, the, the burden of proof in a criminal case is always with the Crown. The defense, with rare exception, doesn't have to prove anything. The Crown has to prove the essential elements of an offense, in this case sexual assault, beyond a reasonable doubt on the basis of admissible and relevant evidence. So in a case from years ago called WD, Mr. Justice Corey from the Supreme Court of Canada said there's a three-part test. If you believe the accused, then no matter what else, you must acquit. If the accused says he didn't do it and you believe him, you must acquit regardless of anything else. If you don't believe the accused, but still think, well, it might reasonably be true, you must acquit. If you completely reject the evidence of the accused, then you look at the rest of the evidence and see if uh, it is accepted beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you still have a reasonable doubt, having dismissed the evidence of the accused, and you're just looking at the evidence of the complainant, and you still have a reasonable doubt, you must acquit. In this case, Justice Duty found he rejected the evidence of, of uh, the accused, and when he looked at the complainant's evidence, he found that she had serious memory lapses, she had some mental health issues, and he simply, in all of the circumstances, couldn't rely on her evidence. It doesn't mean that she was lying. It doesn't mean that she's a bad person and was purposely trying mis to mislead the court. It's just that he couldn't rely on the evidence as being um, accurate because right. of problems that she had. Yeah, as a matter of fact, his quote, this is the justice in sentencing, I do not believe her just as I do not believe Mr. Boyle. So it's like a wash. Uh, so there's, I guess that disqualifies any kind of... Uh, case of conviction against him, even though uh, he's not credible either in the judge's eyes. So there's no balance of probabilities weighed in here. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a high bar. Absolutely, because, and the reason it's a high bar is, first of all, in a criminal case, the accused is presumed innocent. 
Secondly, unlike a civil proceeding where the, the, the standard is the balance of probabilities, in a criminal proceeding, we're talking about the liberty of, a, of one of Her Majesty's subjects. So if you're going to take away someone's liberty, you better do it after a very careful consideration of the evidence and the applicable law and rules of procedure and be not 100% sure. You don't, nobody can prove anything to 100% mathematical certainty, but beyond a reasonable doubt. So pretty sure that what the Crown is alleging happened, in fact, happened. Yeah, well, the judge does concede that, you know, uh, what probably happened, you know, the guy made her frustrated and angry, but she didn't fear for her safety at the time. Ergo, uh, it wasn't like unlawful confinement or uh, whatever, and so, or it didn't pass the test, as you say. Lawrence Ben Eliezer with us, legal expert in regards to uh, matters dealing with the courts, obviously. Lawrence, I've got to ask you then about this St. Mike's case, because these three teenagers who back in, I guess, October, uh, pled guilty to these charges of assault and sexual assault, uh, they were sentenced today to two years of probation each. And uh, I had calls earlier that were saying uh, this is an outrage because, in fact, sexual assault, uh, assault with a broom handle, I mean, that's the sexual assault component. You know, in one case, it's uh, propagating child pornography because they filmed it and distributed it to their pals. But uh, two years probation, does that sound appropriate in this context? It does in this context, and I'll, I'll say quickly why I think so. First of all, we have to bear in mind that a fourth young person had pleaded guilty in June and received the two-year probationary sentence. Secondly, these three pleaded guilty. They didn't put the complainant, the the young person who suffered all this um, injury and harm and public humiliation, they didn't put him through the further stress and strain of a trial. Thirdly, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, which is what we're talking about here, the sentencing provisions in there, unlike the regular uh, the criminal code for adults, in the YCJA, it is offender-centered. So the particular circumstances of the offender or the accused are much more important in a youth sentence setting than for adults because youth are more vulnerable and also presumably uh, likelier to be rehabilitated. So for that purpose, yes, it's a much more generous um, uh, framework. Justice Wiegand, in this case, who is an experienced judge and sits at 311 Jarvis, he looked at a number of sources to figure out what sentence to impose, including the victim impact statement by the complainant, including psychological reports and and cognitive reports with respect to each of the offenders, then the sentencing principles of the Youth Criminal Justice Act, and also, very interestingly, the cultural atmosphere at St. Michael's College. And it's true, as the Crown said, this is not Her Majesty against St. Mike's. But there was a culture of bullying and of hazing in that institution that contributed to what these young people did. And his honor quite correctly said, well, it's not dispositive. It's not the thing that made me decide what sentence to impose. It is something that I really should take into account. And he said, um, 
I conclude that the criminal behavior in that locker room was fertilized by an atmosphere in which bullying was part of the normative culture of the three boys being sentenced today. The incidents in this case were a further and more extreme criminal extension of what was already going on in their school lives. So these three lived in, a, in an institution where this went on regularly. And his honor basically said it was really difficult to expect, to expect that they wouldn't be affected by this. Wow, that's almost a root causes argument. Well, yeah, and it's important. That's what the law is, John. We take a very intellectual approach to these things. I know people like to hear about long sentences, but usually that's fueled by revenge and no other motive. We're just going to punish. We're going to hit as hard as possible. The legal system says, no, we have a much greater purpose in mind because sooner or later, these people have to be released from custody. And what are we going to do to maximize the chance that once released, they don't come back? Well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, for psychic uh, gratification, I guess, of the public, the larger society in which they live and function, there's this call for punishment to some extent, call for deterrence, uh, and two years probation. As I had one caller express, the kids will still be going to Blue Mountain on weekends skiing, probably sunny uh, south for a March break. Uh, you know, they'll be doing the things at the Lake Joe Club in the summer. They're not impressed. They think that these kids got away with something here, and they'll probably be laughing uh, in private behind the back. But I wanted to back up just a second because you said something very interesting about where the law with the Youth Criminal Justice Act is actually accused-centered. Uh, so it takes, and I'm not saying, uh, maybe you can help me here, whether the victim is playing the secondary role here, you know, or isn't, uh, there isn't as much of a priority placed on the victim's uh, feelings and psyche, but the accused center means uh, they give the benefit of the doubt to the accused. Well, as a, as a criminal defense lawyer of 30 years, I really have very little uh, interest in the feelings of the complainant. Um, it, the criminal justice system is not in place to make the complainant whole. The criminal litigation process is between the state and the accused, not the, the complainant. But the Criminal Justice Act, all that says is we will pay more attention to the individual circumstances of a young person than we would in, the, in an identical case where the accused is an adult, because an adult is more set in their ways, less amenable to rehabilitation, and therefore not deserving of nearly as much consideration as a young person. That's not to say that the young person is just going to walk away. I doubt very much that these um, three young men, as well as the the one who pleaded guilty in June is going to walk away laughing. That's something that uh, these vengeance-minded um, uh, activists like to say, and it's a great talking point, but it's not reality. Well, people live with their actions, and presuming that these young people are anywhere near more normal, it's going to stay with them, and it's going to affect what they do. Well, according to their lawyer anyway, they're feeling remorse and shame, and uh, that might have been one of those uh, mitigating factors. That's in why this. they pleaded guilty. Sorry to interrupt, but that's why they pleaded guilty. What do you make of the Justice Wiegand uh, declining to read his entire decision, saying the courtroom was too loud? He didn't want to be misinterpreted. Well, um, courtroom decorum, unfortunately, in the 30 years that I've been doing this, has deteriorated. People think that it's a reality show. People think that they can just... 
uh, uh, whisper and murmur and bring in their water and just behave as if uh, they're sitting in their underwear with their feet up on the coffee uh, Lawrence, on the coffee table. He's the judge. He can clear the courtroom. He can pound the gavel. Say, everybody, sit down. Shut up. No, he can't clear the courtroom, John. A, a trial is a public hearing, and this is a beautiful example of a judge acting in balance. I'm sure that at some point, someone in that courtroom who is uh, in charge of the courtroom said, quiet, please. So <laughs> then what, what he did, mm. if they wouldn't listen, rather than say, everybody out, he just said, you know what? I have written reasons. This was a written judgment. This wasn't something he was just talking off the top of his head. I have written reasons. I've handed them to counsel for the Crown and counsel for the accused. It's a public document. You want to have a look at it later on? There you go. That's how I got it. I called the courthouse, and they were kind enough to send it over. Here's Lawrence Ben-Eliezer. I'm down to less than a minute, but i got to ask you about this. Uh, Tuba Yaya, she was the second wife of Mohammed Shafia. You know the story. They killed their four, uh, the three daughters and his first wife in that honor killing outside of Kingston back in 2010. Uh she was granted a five-hour furlough to visit her mother, her dead mother, uh, the gravesite, uh, on compassionate grounds. The parole board made that decision. that make any sense to you? She's in jail for first degree. Uh, you know, the circumstances surrounding it leave everybody uh, outraged and livid. Uh, why does the parole board make such a decision, and who the hell is on this board in the first place? The parole board is composed of two main groups of people. One is career civil servants, and the other is people appointed by um, uh, governor and council, which is on the recommendation of cabinet. No matter what we think of the murderer in this case, the convicted murderer, she's still a human being. And if we're not willing to treat people with any sort of dignity, then it seems to me we should surrender the right to take away their liberty because we're no better than they are. That's your final answer? That's my final answer, unless you want me to use a lifeline. <laughs> you may need one. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, Lawrence, we'll let you run on that note. I appreciate your weighing in on all these matters. Thank you. It's always a privilege, John. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.